word and hand, turning with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. Uh, we're going through a series of the parable of the sower, or as it's also known as the parable of the soils. Last week, we focused in on the sower and the seed. We saw that the seed was the word of God. We spoke about how Martin Luther summarized the Word of God and said you need to summarize the entire Word of God, the entire revelation of God, with two words. The first word was the law. The law that does one of two things. It is either going to be condemning us. It's the, it's the, it's the plumb line by which we will be judged. It shows us the righteousness of God and says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Or it is going to be convicting us. Now, there's a similarity between condemnation and conviction. Sometimes conviction feels like condemnation. But the difference is condemnation is going to, con is going to condemn and then just leave. But conviction has a goal in mind, and that goal is the second word. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The law comes. It shows us our sin. It causes us to despair of our own righteousness and causes us to seek out the righteousness of of another, as Luther called it, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belonged to Christ, yet is given to us as a free gift received by faith alone. And it is in those words that the kingdom of God is founded upon. It is established in the word of God. And how do we receive the word of God? It is primarily through the preaching of the word of God, the preaching. And so me, as a minister, I'm not a minister of the kingdoms of this world. I'm not a minister of a particular form of government. I'm not a minister of a particular political party. I am purely, by the grace of God, a minister of the word of God. I minister to his kingdom. If I minister of anything else, I'm not doing you any good. Well, today we're going to be start going through the four different soils. Today we'll be focusing on the soil that is the path. These are going to be different types of hearers of the words, different people who receive the word. So before I go through and read this parable and its explanation again in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, let me pray and ask that God would be pleased to add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, these are no ordinary words. These are not the words of men. These are the words of God and the words of life. Father, if any of us would be saved or convinced of our salvation, then Father, we require these words. And we require your Holy Spirit. For the natural mind cares nothing for these things. So Father, we we, we would ask you for spiritual eyes with which to see the glory that is revealed here, with spiritual ears with which to hear, and minds with which to understand, and hearts with which to believe, and to be overjoyed that we have received such a blessing as this. So, Father, would you do this for us today? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe? For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, hear now the word of God. 
Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in this teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and they devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, <clears throat> growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and even a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those who outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the words that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the, are, are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for, those, uh, for other things entered and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold amen so i haven't been married all that long going on five years now uh in five years i've learned a lot about my wife some of it some of it makes sense to me some of it doesn't quite make all that sense much sense to me uh, for instance, um, I'm a bit, I, I love television, I love TV shows, I love watching movies. I used to be a bit of a movie buff back in the day, but if you want my wife to fall asleep if she's ever struggling with insomnia, just turn on the TV, give it about 10 minutes, and she's completely and utterly unconscious. She blames this on the kids, but she did this way before we had any kids, so that can't be it. She just, it just puts her out. Uh, she also loves to decorate. This has been a wonderful addition to my life. If you ever saw my bachelor pad before Hillary and I were married, it was despicable. Just nothing on the walls, no decorations. There's a pile of dirty clothes and then a pile of clean clothes who has time to put things in a dresser. But then here comes Hillary and everything needs to be beautiful. Everything needs to look. And this has added a, quite a bit to my life. Uh, we just moved into the manse and she looks, she's looking at it as kind of a blank canvas on which she can, she can go and she can add all this beauty. She can put this here and put that there. Uh, we're very blessed. We got, had a little bit of equity built up in our home that we're selling in Huntsville, so we're able to actually be able to like, you know, buy some decorative things rather than just kind of pulling them out of somebody's trash or something like that. So she's, she's, she's tickled pink about this. But probably the thing that just, 
I, I, as much as I try to understand it, I, I don't understand it, is she absolutely despises any kind of sauce, any kind. Mustard, mayonnaise, ketchup, honey mustard, Chick-fil-A sauce, anything at all. Um, I joke with her sometimes and say, one day I'm going to start a deli, and I'm going to make a sandwich in her honor. It's just going to be bread, ham, lettuce, and tomato, and that's it. And I'm going to call it the dry heave. <laughs> and, and no one will ever buy it. But it will be, it will be her sandwich, the, the dry heave. Now, this doesn't make sense to me because I put sauce on everything. I know I'm in Memphis, home of the dry rub ribs. But if I cook ribs for you, guess what they're going to be slathered in? Barbecue sauce, lots of it. I love sauce. It's not. It makes anything worth eating. And so, but it's funny, kind of like I was telling the, the the kids in the in the in the children's sermon. It's so strange that when one person absolutely despises, somebody else can come along and say, "This is absolutely wonderful. I can't live without this." The same is true with the Word of God. For one person, these are the very words of life. This is what gives some of us the courage to get out of bed in the morning, the courage to stand and look death in the face without fear, without trouble. We love it. We cling to it. But for others, they could care less. They despise the word. Maybe they like it a little bit, but not enough to commit to it. Not enough to make it their, the very air that they breathe. Well, why is that? Why is it that two different people can receive the same thing and respond to it in very, very different ways? Now, the easy thing to say is, well, it has to do with, with, with how the word is communicated. Maybe that, that, that hick preacher from Mississippi, maybe he's not eloquent enough. Maybe he didn't do a good enough job explaining the word. Well, what about Jesus? Was Jesus not eloquent enough? Was Jesus not a clear enough teacher? I dare say that he was. Yet people responded to it in many different ways. In fact, most of the people that he spoke to had no clue what he was talking about. Like, for instance, the scribes and the Pharisees, they take the word and what do they use it? They try to turn around and use it as a weapon to convict and crucify Christ. And then what about the disciples? They receive the word, and it's just confusion, maybe even delusion. I'll give you an example of that. The, the disciple, the apostle Peter, the rock, Jesus comes to him and the disciples, and he says, who, does people, who do people say that I am? And then the disciples start kind of just rambling off things that they've heard from different people. Well, some people say you're one of the prophets. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist. But then Jesus pointedly asked them, who do you say that I am? And they respond, well, Peter, on their behalf, responds, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You are the Son of God. And either you're thinking, finally, somebody gets it. Somebody gets it. And even Jesus says, Peter, it is not flesh and blood that has revealed this to you. It is the Spirit of God. But then Jesus goes and he starts to talk about what it means to be the Messiah. And he talks about how he must go to Jerusalem and how when he goes there, how he must be delivered over to the scribes and to the Pharisees, how he must suffer many things, and ultimately how he must be pierced, how he must be crucified, how he must suffer and die. And then Peter takes him aside and says, how can you be the king if you suffer and die? 
That's not what kings do. Kings are powerful. Kings lead. Kings rule. And you're going to go there and die. And then Jesus goes and he goes from calling him the rock to telling him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. They received it differently. And it wasn't because of the eloquent, it wasn't because Jesus wasn't eloquent enough. In fact, the opposite very often is true. God can use bumbling, stumbling buffoons to deliver his word and to grow his kingdom. A great example of that is one of the most eloquent preachers that there's ever been, Charles Spurgeon. He was called to Christ uh, during a, a snowpocalypse there in London. But by the way, I don't know if you know this, it doesn't actually snow that much in London, like at all. But this was you know, kind of a strange event. There's a big blizzard. He's on the street. He just needs to get out of the snow. He just comes stumbling into a primitive Methodist church. The guy sitting there preaching, he calls him essentially an ignoramus. He wasn't even the pastor. The pastor wasn't able to make that. Probably got snowed in or something like that. This was just one of the congregation who just decided to take it up on himself. He could barely even read the scripture. He didn't have anything prepared, and all he did was repeat the words, look unto God, look unto God, you there, look unto God. And you know what? Charles Spurgeon did. And there you have the conversion story of one of the greatest preachers to live since the days of the apostles. So if it's not the preacher, if it's not the eloquence, the highness of the philosophy, the highness of the language that calls sinners into the presence of God, that calls them to be saved and to rely and to trust upon Jesus, what is it? How does this happen? Why do people respond to it differently? It's because... They're all different manners of people. In this parable, Jesus gives us four different manners of people. The first one is going to be those along the path who never receive the word. Sure, they hear it, but they reject it. The second is going to be like those who are like the rocky ground, who, yes, they receive it for a while, they like it, until it begins to cost them something. And then all of a sudden, they're not a big fan. And then it's going to be those who are like the thorny ground, who enjoy the word but don't like it quite as much as money, fame, fortune, the opinions of others, things like that. And then finally you have the good soil. These are the Christians, the ones who receive it with joy and they persevere in it, come what may. Today we're going to be looking at the path, those that reject the word. But before we do that, I want to bring something to your attention. Uh, hopefully, you've already been thinking this, maybe as we've read this text, maybe this is something that's been on your mind. Anytime I come to the parable of the sower, uh, something that just jumps out to me is this fact that even though I am convinced that I am good soil, that I am convinced that I am a Christian, convinced that I am bought and purchased by the blood of Christ, convinced that the, that the execution of God's wrath has been fully satisfied in the death of his son, my Savior and my Lord Jesus Christ. I come to this parable and I see little bits of myself in the rocky ground, in the thorny ground, and then even in the path. I was, 
had the, as actually as I was um, preparing this sermon um, uh, this past week, I had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with um, the, one of the guys who worked at this coffee shop. And we were talking about this, and we were talking about like heaven and assurance and things like that, and kind of talking about like how, like how a lot of Christians think they're like just holier than thou. And, and I spoke a little bit about my confidence before the throne. And I, I told him, I said, I'm not, I'm not like when, if, I, if I died today, if I walked out in the parking lot and got hit by a bus, and I died, I would be confident that when I see God, I would see a father with his arms outstretched welcoming his son into his presence. And I think that because, not because I'm, I'm better than you, not because I'm smarter than you, not because I'm more spiritual than you. I believe this because I believe that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. That what was required of me was accomplished not by me, but for me in Jesus Christ. That is where my confidence lies. But if that's true, if I am good soul, why do I see so much of the path in myself? Why do I see so much of the rocky ground and the thorny ground? Why do you see all these things? And I hope you do. Because all of these things, they do rest upon us. They rest within us. And there's a reason for that. I think the best illustration that I can think of this was back when I was at Mississippi State as an elective, I took a class called Abnormal Psychology. I took it because I, I like psychology. If, if I didn't, if it wouldn't take, you know, 10 years to, you know, to actually do anything with a psychology degree, I would have, I would have majored in that. I would have majored in that. Uh, I just found it fascinating. So I took this abnormal psychology class as an elective. And I remember the first day of class, the first real lecture, once we got past the syllabus and everything, the professor, she began to speak and she said, now, as we go through this class and we're learning about all these different disorders and all of these different uh, mental issues that some people have, as we go through them, you're going to, you're going to be going through them and say, I'm kind of like that. That's, do I have this? And so next, she said, you're, you're probably going to leave this class having self-diagnosed yourself with everything in the book. And just think, like, I need to be locked up in an asylum. Said, she said, let me, she said, let me just go ahead and clarify this. The reason that you see a little bit of yourself in all of these different disorders is because all of these disorders, very few of them are contrary to human nature. Most of them are just a little part of human nature that is just so extreme that it just takes over the rest of the personality, the rest of the personality, and just dominates the rest of it. I think that's a good illustration of why we see so much of ourselves, even if we are good soul, in these other soils. Because of our fallen nature, we are so prone to wander from the throne of grace, so prone to reject the things that are offered us in the gospel, so prone to be, to be fearful of, of persecution, so, so, so prone to, to sacrifice truth for the things of this world, money and fame and all these different things. We're very prone to it. The reason that every Christian who is possessed by the Holy Spirit, justified forever by the imputed righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and with nothing to fear on the day of judgment, will find the pieces of him or herself in each of these souls is because by our sinful and fallen nature, they are all there. They are the remnant of the old times where you're tempted to sin, 
to become angry, to be overcome by lust or whatever it might be, that in the midst of that temptation, Christ comes to your mind and you simply said, I can't think about that right now because he's standing in the way of something that I want. He's standing in the way of something that I feel like I need and you set him aside. That's path. That is a rejection of him. Students, young people, I've been a teacher for a while. I know how it is. You go into school, and the first thing that comes to your mind is not how can I glorify or honor Christ today? How can I be more like him? How can I shine his light throughout this school or whatever it is that I'm doing? But the first thing is, is like, how can I impress somebody? How can I be thought better of in the presence of my friends and my schoolmates? That question could be asked of any of us. If I were to delve into your mind and come up and find a list of things that kind of govern your day, how far down that list do I have to go before I find the glorification of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? How far down that list? Now, I'm not standing sitting here in an ivory tower as if I this is not something I struggle with. If you, if you pulled that list out of my mind, I would be ashamed of where Christ falls on that list. It's the remnant of the path that is in me. It is still there. I'm no different, and you're no different. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to all men. It's all part of us, like my psychology teacher said. But if you are good soul, it is not because you're tempted or because you don't see what the path, uh, you, don't, you don't see that the path of rocks and thorns, you don't see these things inside of yourself. You're not good soul because you're perfect. You're not even, you're not even good soul because your faith is perfect. You are good soul for one reason and for one reason only, because God would have it so. Because God would have it so. This text is dripping with the doctrines of grace. With the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation and in judgment. For you see the sower sows, but he cannot give the growth. Notice that in this parable, you see the sowers sowing the word, preaching, but you never actually see the field getting plowed. We got a lot of farmers here. You might be thinking, what is he doing? Sowing seed that into ground that hasn't even been worked yet, that hasn't even been plowed. Well, the reason is, and I just, I just actually recently learned this, is because in the East, they do farming very differently than we do here in the West. Here, we plow first and then we plant. That's not how it works in the East. You go, you sow the seed, you throw it, and then you go behind the sowers and you plow the ground. The reason you don't see anybody, you don't see the sower plowing the fields is because he is not the one who readies the soil. He is not the one who drives the plow through the rocky ground, uprooting it and putting oxygen and nutrients into it. That is God. It is God who gives the growth. It is as Spurgeon has also said in reference to his own salvation, that when we, then he looks into himself, he doesn't find a man holy, holy enough for eternity. He doesn't see a man spiritual enough. He doesn't see a man smart enough. He doesn't see a man good enough good-looking enough, athletic enough. He sees a man unworthy of anything. Therefore, he can only reach one conclusion, that if I am a Christian, 
It is only because God would have it so. And what a wonderful thought this is, that God would look upon a poor and wretched sinner such as ourselves and say, this one here is one who I will set my love upon, who I will demonstrate this love to by sending my only son in the likeness of his or her sinful flesh, and for sin I will destroy it in his flesh. How wonderful is the mercy of our God. How glorious and how bottomless is his grace. But he's not merely sovereign in salvation. He's also sovereign in judgment. And quite somberly, I think this is the, I think this is the main point that, that Jesus is trying to get at when he quotes in verses 11 and 12, when he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. He says to you, speaking of the the disciples who are with him, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, this is the reason that he is speaking in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, it may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. I am speaking in parables so that they will not turn, so that they will not be forgiven. This is judgment he is limiting his teaching he is limiting his understanding because they are under judgment it's an ironic judgment let's think about it these jews particularly the scribes and the pharisees they have neglected the weightier things of the law they look at the law and they see a reflection of themselves as they would like to be seen rather than as who they really are Sinners in the hands of an angry God. They neglect the poor, they neglect the weak, they neglect the needy, and think simply because they wear the right things, they eat the right foods, they say the right things in front of the right people, that God is somehow pleased and that is worthy to be called a citizen of the kingdom of God. The fact is, it isn't. And so when Jesus comes to them, ironically, he is not, even though he is their Messiah, He is their God-made flesh. He is not to their liking. So in this ironic judgment, God has sent them their Savior, the Savior that they have been longing and waiting for. But since he is not to their liking, he will go unheard and he will go unseen. And this is an important illustration for what judgment looks like. When we think of judgment, we think of the big things. The judgment of Egypt at the Red Sea the judgment of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, the judgment of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians, the judgment at the end of the age when Christ returns, those those marvelous, horrifying pictures that you see in the book of Revelation where it's loud, it's chaotic, it's deadly. That's what we think of. But judgment often doesn't look like that. Judgment, I think most regularly, is quiet, And it's very still, silent and invisible. Unless you have the eyes with which to see and the ears with which to hear, you'll miss it. Judgment, very often, is God giving us exactly what we want. The Israelites did not want this Jesus of Nazareth, so they didn't get him. They'll get something else. This is Paul's point in Romans 1 when speaking of women and men who have exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations, he describes it like this, that God has given them over to a debased mind. He 
gave them what he, he gave them exactly what they wanted. This is something that I would teach to my students tirelessly, tirelessly. It is not those who are concerned with the guilt of their sin, who are worried about their eternity, who are the ones who should be the most worried. It is those who simply do not care. Those who could care less about these things, these who have no conviction of sin, these are the ones who should be the most concerned. These are the ones who should be worried. If you are convicted of your sin, guess what? That is very likely a work of the Holy Spirit, so long as it drives you to the cross of Christ, where you will find grace and you will find peace for your soul and peace with God. If it's doing that, it is the work of God. But if it is not there, be worried. It could be the judgment of God and him giving you exactly what you want. It is as the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw has said, there are, there are two great tragedies in life. The first is not getting what you want, and the second is getting it. Are you getting what you want? So are you burdened by sin? Do you think upon the goodness and mercy of God and think, how could I repay such wonderful goodness with such sin and I'm not just sinning against anybody I'm sinning against somebody who loved me and gave himself for me I'm taking this wonderful gift and I'm spitting in the gift giver's face what is wrong with me this is what you're thinking I have good news when God convicts us of our sin he doesn't leave us there to wallow in it he says to us come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you so I hope that you are good soul I hope that you are doubtless of this fact I hope that you have assurance and I hope that you are convinced of it but I hope that convincing and I hope that assurance does not come from anything that you found within yourself I hope that when you're looking to yourself that you're like Peter trying to walk on the water that when he looks upon himself he begins to sink and sink and sink but when his eyes are upon Christ it is then that he can walk. It is then that he is saved. So where does your assurance lie? It is not here. It is at the right hand of Father, right hand of the, of the Father. Your righteousness is not found here. Your righteousness is not found here either. It is found in heaven where Christ has gone. So although I do pray that you are a good soul, where the seed of the gospel will bear much fruit, Christ tells us in this parable in no uncertain terms that not everyone is good soil. Not everyone receives the good news with joy, but there are many who, like the, like the path, pay no mind to it and reject it as nothing. I want to finish this morning by reflecting on this first kind of soul, the path. In the days of Jesus, the Roman Empire was in full swing. They um, uh, made a name for themselves in road building. Uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about something akin more to like a cattle trail. Cows don't make roads. They're too dumb to do that. However, they do travel the same path over and over and over again. And through their constantly trotting down and packing in the dirt and packing in the soil, it becomes so hard that nothing can penetrate it. Nothing at all. And so nothing grows there. When, we speak, when Jesus is speaking of the path, he is speaking of a heart that is so hard that the word comes to it and just bounces off of it. They reject it as if it were nothing. Now, where does a hard heart come from? How does it manifest itself? 
Well, sometimes it manifests itself through busyness. Simply, simply being distracted. Maybe you're distracted right now. Maybe you're so distracted by your distractions that you don't even hear me talking about your distractions. We live in a busy world. And so sometimes even though we hear it, it's like my wife says often about me, the things she says to me. It's like you hear me, but you're not listening to me. Maybe that's what it is. You've heard the gospel day in and day out, but my goodness, outside of the, outside of the sanctuary, you don't even think about it anymore. It's a rejection of it. The word of God is not to be received and like, oh, that was nice, moving on to the next thing. No, it permeates our entire life. It goes beyond and through the distractions of life. Sometimes a hard heart will manifest itself through hatred, pure, a pure hatred of, and rejection of the word of God. This is the most obvious way that someone manifests a hard heart. I see much of it in our society today. Our culture can think of any number of ways to justify its hatred of the word. But the one thing that I think underlines all of their justifications is this. That Christianity presents another God who demands devotion over the puny idol of self. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. Well, here's the thing. All of those idols, our favorite ones, all look an awful lot like ourselves. Who is God? to tell me to repent who is God to tell me what to do who is God to tell me that I need a savior something outside of myself me 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 but as a teacher working with young people I'm afraid that the most common way among the younger generation that it is rejected that it probably worries me the most is apathy they receive the word and they respond with, eh, I don't care. I used to teach at a covenant school. People like covenant children who were brought up in churches, brought up in Christian households. And pretty much every year that I taught, at some point, at least one student, usually multiple, would come to me and they would ask, why do I have to be in this class? I want to be an engineer. Shouldn't I be in a math lab? Shouldn't I be learning calculus? Why do I have to learn this stuff? Or I want to be a doctor. Shouldn't I be in an anatomy class? Shouldn't I be doing something like that? Almost every year, that question. And I would answer the question. I answer the question. I say, so you want to be an engineer. Let's just say that you graduate high school, you go to college, you make good grades, and you go out there and you're able to become an engineer, you make good money, you're very successful in all that you do. You know what question you're still going to be asking yourself? What does it matter? What does it matter? Why does this matter? Why does it matter? It's so that everything else can matter. Because one of these days, you will be laying in a bed, surrounded by your friends, and surrounded by your family, and surrounded by your loved ones. And you know what? It won't matter what you learned in math. It won't matter what you learned in science. It won't matter what you learned in English. It won't matter how good of an engineer, doctor, truck driver, whatever it might be. It won't matter. All that will matter is that you're facing death in its face, and you're going to ask, why? Why does it matter? And then as I'm giving that answer, you know what, my, you know what the most common response is to the person who's asked that question? They lose interest two sentences into it. I'm answering the question that they ask, and they do not care. It does not matter. 
Nothing matters. They're apathetic to it. And I'm sure that many of you won't have to try very hard to think of people who fit one of these things. They're distracted, they hate it, or they simply do not care. Maybe it's a child, niece, nephew, something. And maybe you're ready to just kind of throw your hands up and give up. Say, I can't do anything. Well, guess what? That's where you are. You've hit the truth. You can't do anything. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do that will save them. It's not you who give the growth. It is God who gives the growth. Now, this is scary to us because it takes the power away from us. But think upon the character of the one who it gives power to. How did he manifest his love to you? Was it not through his word? Was it not through his gospel that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before your very face? Was it not his word? Was it not his doing that did this? Why are you a Christian and not the person down the street? It is because God would have it so. And so what do you do with the lost? What do you do with those who are like the path, who, whose hearts are hard? God must plow it. And how does he do that? He uses you, and he uses me. Pray for them. That's the first thing you do. You pray for them. Don't just pray for them. Tell them that you pray for them. Who knows? It might be those very prayers that will lead them to the cross. It might be those very ones. St. Augustine writes very frequently, crediting the prayers of his godly mother for his own conversion. He's like, if, this, if my mother did not pray for me, you do not have St. Augustine. You have Augustine, the condemned sinner. The second thing that you do is persevere in sharing the good news with them. But let me give you, let me give you a little advice on this. Because a lot of times when we, when we share the gospel with people, we want to focus in on how much they need the gospel. Now, that's not a bad thing. They do need the gospel. They need to be made aware of the gospel. But if you do that time and time again, let me, let me encourage you, take a step back and tell them how much you require the gospel, how much God has done for you, how much you need Christ, how much you need his righteousness, how much you need his blood. Who knows? It might be through those prayers, and it might be through those testimony that God will build his kingdom right before your face and you get to be the tool that he uses. Father, let it be so. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, it's uh, humbling to be told that we're powerless and that we can't do anything. Um, but Father, let us please be encouraged by a good and biblical, Christ-centered, God-centered theology. That we know who you are, that you are a God who has loved us and gave your own son for us. That you are a God who is not, who is not, who is, who is not slow to, to withhold his mercy, but is quick to give it as you have given it to us. Father, I pray this morning, especially for those who hear me, who are either lost themselves or who know someone who is lost. Father, I would pray that you would plow the fields of these hearts and that you would plant in them the good news, the gospel and the glory of the kingdom 
Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, I pray these things for his sake and in his name. Amen.